Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark. Your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Becca. How's life in your little fort? Uh, it's warm. It's <laughs> real cozy, though. I'm currently in a fort that I created before this episode because we realized that I sound better when I'm under a blanket. Yeah, so let us know if you notice a difference in Becca's sound quality this episode. <laughs> if so, I will be recording in my fort from now on out. Mm -hmm. But uh, today we are going to be covering some really exciting stuff. You're going to take it away with the history of wine, and then I'm going to yep. tell you a little bit about the most notorious scandal to ever hit the wine world. But I'm not going to say much more about it now because I don't want to give it away. I'm so excited to hear about that. Yeah, I didn't know anything until I started looking into it, and it's it's pretty good. Cool. Before we dive in, we got a new domain name, which is super exciting. Dietheticsafterdark.com. So we have our own Dietetics After Dark website, and you should check it out. Yeah, it has all of our episodes, our show notes, our transcripts. It has everything mm -hmm. up there. It's super comprehensive, and yeah, Sarah put it together. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you, pod page, not sponsored. <laughs> Should we just dive right in? There's so much history here. Yeah, we could dive right in. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. 
All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. Okay, so wine is one of my personal favorite adult beverages. Do you uh, agree? Would that be true for you too? Yeah, I I dabble. You dabble? Mm -hmm. You're more of a Moscow mule gal, but you dabble. It's true. While I was doing the research for this, I couldn't help but have some wine. But yeah, usually I am a a Moscow mule kind of gal. It's just like with that McDonald's episode. Like all I wanted was McDonald's. (laughs) And now when I was researching wine, I was like, I would love. I actually didn't have wine while I researched because I just didn't have any on hand, but (laughs) would have been nice. Okay. So started diving into the research and I quickly realized that there's so much to learn about wine. It is so complex and kind of intimidating. And I really don't know very much about wine. So I learned a lot during this research. Let's start off nice and easy. So what exactly is wine? It's an alcoholic beverage, typically 10 to 15% ABV made from fermented grape juice. So any fruit can actually be used to make wine, but if the bottle just says wine, then you know it's made with grapes. Mm. So if it's made with strawberries, it has to say on the bottle, strawberry wine, peach wine, whatever it is. But if it just says wine, then you know that it was made with grapes. The fermentation process typically takes between two to three weeks, during which the yeast consumes the sugar in the grapes and converts it to alcohol, carbon dioxide, and heat. And then after the fermentation process, the wine can be aged, and the length of aging actually depends on the wine. But it's usually not longer than a year. So contrary to popular belief, I'm sure you've heard this before, when someone says, they're aging like a fine wine, just getting better with time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not always true. (laughs) So contrary to popular belief, wine does not always get better with aging. Aging changes the wine, but past a certain point, it's very likely that the wine is getting worse. Okay. I actually have to interject right here. (laughs) Um, So my Baba, and I'll tell you the story now, because I know I started to right at the beginning. She has a vineyard. Has currently? Um, So she's in a retirement home now, but still owns the land. So she had a vineyard and an orchard Mm -hmm. back when my mom was a like a teenager and before she moved out and whatnot. And she had the vineyard up until a couple of years ago. But for my mom's wedding, they made a bunch of wine. And um, just this past year, my mom actually found a couple of the wine bottles from the wedding in our like yep. wine, in our cellar. And um, she ended up giving my sister and I some of it and we opened it and it was literally vinegar. Straight vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So case in point, that's so cool though. Mm -hmm. Where was the vineyard? Uh, In Welland, Ontario. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I actually pulled out this little fruit bag that my mom gave me. It's called Wagon Wheel Orchards. Yeah. And I pulled out the fruit bag, but it's outside of my fort and I can't go get it, but I'll show you later. (laughs) Beyond the walls of your fortress. (laughs) Okay, so the grapes used to make wine are different than the grapes that we snack on. So they're smaller, sweeter, have thicker skin, more juice, and more seeds. And there's a form of measurement called the BRICS level, so B-R-I-X, which measures the percentage of sugar in a liquid. 
So one degree bricks is one gram of sucrose in a hundred grams of solution. And so the grapes that we would typically snack on, which I think are pretty sweet typically, Mm -hmm. have a bricks level of 17 to 19, but grapes used for wine are closer to 24 to 26. So significantly sweeter. Most of the common wines that you'll probably recognize are actually named after their grape varietal. So a single varietal wine is made primarily with one type of grape, and it's usually named after that grape. So a bottle of Riesling is made with Riesling grapes, Merlot made with Merlot grapes, and so on. Did you know that? I did, yeah. Oh, I feel like, do you know a, a, like a good amount about wine if you're... Baba was a, a winery owner? No, so she so she owned a vineyard, but her grapes were actually mainly used for grape juice. But mm-hmm. my uncles and like my family members and stuff were big in the, the wine business. I personally was not, so I still feel very uncomfortable talking to somebody who's yeah. um, very knowledgeable in wine. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I know like the the basics because anytime we would go to to visit her, we used to have to go out and like tie the grapes and, and stuff like that. So I know the basics in terms of grape growing. I think that's really cool. So it is useful to note that in each country and even in each state, that there are different rules for how much of the grape variety should actually be included in a wine so that it could be labeled as a varietal wine. Mm. So for example, in the U.S., 75% of the grapes, well, in most of the U.S., 75% of the grapes in the bottle must be a Merlot grape to call it a Merlot. But in Oregon, 90% of the grapes must be a Merlot grape to call it a Merlot. Interesting. Wines can vary according to their sweetness, acidity, tannin, flavor, and body. So sweetness, um, a wine can range from having almost no sweetness, so that would be a dry wine, to being as sweet as maple syrup with an ice wine, which Canada is the number one producer of, by the way. Acidity, so wine as a beverage lies on the acidic end of the pH scale, so ranging from as low as 2.5 to as high as 4.5. So Always remember to pair your wine with an alkaline water. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Like, is this Just coming kidding. out of your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a prank. No need. Just regular water is fine. <laughs> Tannins are found in red wines and they contribute to that astringent kind of dry mouthfeel quality that might happen with red wines. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And aroma, and this is what you might hear like a sommelier talking about, but this is the different tastes and smells and things like berries, flowers, fruity, spicy, zesty, delicate, oaky, um, all the different flavor notes. So wine has been produced for thousands of years. Some of the earliest evidence of wine is from ancient Georgia, Armenia, China, Persia, and Italy. And the early evidence dates between 7,000 BC and 4,000 BC. Little is actually known about the early, early history of wine, but it's thought that the ancient humans made wine from wild fruit, including grapes. So I'm not going to go too deep into the history of wine today because it was, there was just so much and there was a lot of conflicting information too. But I did find one historical story that I want to tell you about, Ooh. and it's the story of the grape louse. Have you ever heard of the grape louse? No, I haven't. Phylloxera is the scientific name, and it's a tiny little aphid responsible for devastating the French wine industry during the great French wine blight of the mid-19th century. Mm. 
So France is well known for being one of the world's most prolific producers of fine wines. But about 150 years ago, the French wine industry was under a critical and nearly invisible threat. By the mid-1860s, grapevines were rotting away and entire vineyards were being destroyed by a mysterious illness, crippling wine production and threatening the future of the whole industry. The cause? A tiny parasitic aphid that traveled over from the United States called phylloxera. In the U.S., phylloxera wasn't a big deal. It existed, but it was only interested in the leaves of the grapevines. Mm. But in France, where the grape varieties were different, they preferred to snack on the roots of the vines, which was destroying the plants. So even after scientists had identified these sneaky aphids, no one could figure out how to get rid of them. France ended up losing almost 2 million hectares of vineyards to the grape louse, and vineyards across Germany, Italy, Spain, South Africa, and New Zealand were also impacted. The French government ended up offering... 320,000 francs, although I found some sources that said 300,000 francs, and I found some sources that said 20,000 francs. So big differences here, and I went with the biggest one. (laughs) Future editing Sarah here. I've done a little more research, and I found an article by Stephen Bittner in a journal called Past and Present, and he confirms 300,000 francs. That's a lot of francs. Still a great prize. They offered 320,000 francs to anyone who could create an effective insecticide, which would be about $4.5 million today. Okay. So big prize. Like, this is a huge deal. They're worried about the wine industry. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, growers are getting really desperate. So they're placing toads under each vine um, in hopes that it'll eat the aphids or letting their chickens roam through the vineyards, just hoping that they could get rid of this phylloxera. Two French wine growers, Léo Lallemand and Gaston Basile, hypothesized that some sort of hybrid grape plant of both the aphid-resistant American vines and the original grape vines from France would be able to survive against the grape louse. So they took a combination of these two grape varieties, the American and the French, and they grafted them together to create a hybrid plant that was tested and proved to be successful. Mm. And this method would later be called reconstitution by French wine growers, and it was very divisive at the time. So wine growers fell into two camps. There were the chemists who rejected the grafting solution and wanted to continue using French grapes, and they persisted with pesticides, which didn't actually work. And then there were the Americanists who embraced the grafting solution and kept growing and, of course, had success. Eventually, the majority of France's vineyards were reconstituted, and today nearly all French wine actually comes from vines that were grafted onto American roots. Wow, that's so fascinating. Um, I actually cool? I actually have a question, and I don't know if you mm-hmm. will know the answer, but remember in the organics episode how you gave us that great description of pesticides and, <laughs> and whatnot? Um, mm-hmm. Had that come into play yet? Like had... The invention of pesticides at that capacity come into play, or were they kind of just testing things to see what would, would work? Well, you're making me think. I don't, I will fact check, but I'm pretty sure I told you about the pesticide called emerald green yeah. that was used in fashion and it was also ended up being linked to a lot of different health 
concerns, but I'm certain that was around in 1860. Future editing Sarah here, pesticides were indeed available at this time and they were tried and used to no avail. I I think it was throughout the 1800s. Okay. So I would guess maybe there's some overlap there. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Good memory. Okay. Remember that hefty prize money, 320,000 francs? Mm -hmm. Leo Lalimont was the first to suggest the hybrid grape varietal. So it was his idea and it was working really well. So he tried to claim the money, but the French government refused to award it. So the rationale was that he had not cured blight, but stopped it from occurring. Oh, come on. That's so pathetic. (laughs) His solution was better. I think that's so mean. (laughs) You didn't cure it, but you stopped it from occurring. (laughs) Uh, that's that's getting down to semantics and uh but also it's said that leo was mistrusted by several notable parties and some people even thought that he introduced the pest to france in the first place so it is possible that he was denied the prize for many other reasons but it looks like nobody got the prize man you'd have to have a lot of foresight to just be like, hey, I'm going to introduce this pest and then I'm going to solve the problem through years of tests. Oh, it's decades. decades. It was a really long time. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I know. That was my exact first thought. It was like, you think this guy brought the bug over, let all of France suffer and have millions of hectares of land, of vineyards destroyed just so he could claim a prize years later? I don't know. I'm not buying it. Seems like a bit of a stretch. And the grape louse still exists today. So because nobody cured it, (laughs) they only stopped it. Uh, It actually hit California in 1983 and caused between one and two billion dollars in damage. And um, now the the majority of grapes are grafted on the American roots and are largely resistant to phylloxera. So still exists, but it's not as massive of a problem as it was back in the day. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about wine in Canada. Canadians like wine. In 2014, we drank an average of 13.5 liters per adult per year. Okay, so that would be 18 bottles of wine per year in 2014 per adult. But there's some people that don't drink wine. Exactly. (laughs) So I think the ones that are drinking it are greatly exceeding 18 bottles. (laughs) But if you did one bottle of wine a week, For the entire year, that would be 52 bottles, and that would be barely a glass a day. Yeah. So it doesn't seem that crazy when you break it down like that. But anyways, that was in 2014, and it was expected to increase to 16.4 liters per adult in 2018. And now I couldn't find if we actually hit that milestone, but given what happened in 2020, I'm sure we exceeded it with flying colors. We exceeded our goal. (laughs) We did it. We did it, Canada. Okay, so nearly 90% of Canada's regular wine drinkers are living in just three provinces. Oh, no. So I know. <laughs> I found this really interesting. 40% of wine drinkers are in Ontario, 28% of wine drinkers are in Quebec, and 19% are in British Columbia. In Quebec, no surprise, but French wines are the most popular, and the Quebecois are more likely to enjoy a rosé. Just a little fun fact. Whereas English-speaking Canadians are more likely to select North American wines with Californian wines leading the pack. Okay. I just wanted to bring it home with some nutrition because that's why we're here, right? Mm -hmm. I 
thought I'd touch on the age-old question, is wine good for us? So this topic is the subject of many clickbaity sort of headlines. Mm -hmm. And the idea that red wine is better for us stems from a theory called the French paradox, which refers to the idea that drinking wine might explain the lower rates of heart disease in the French, despite their fondness for richer foods that are uh, higher in fat. So wine is rich in polyphenols, which are found in grape skins, as well as many other fruits and vegetables and nuts. So theoretically, the polyphenol content might explain the heart protective qualities of the wine, but the evidence that red wine might reduce your heart disease risk is actually pretty weak. So most of it's observational. It's not strong enough to infer causation. And the long-term effects of alcohol have never been tested in a long-term randomized control trial. Although drinking within the guidelines, um, so which, is our, which is approximately two drinks a day for women, three drinks a day for men at a rate of about one drink an hour, mm-hmm. is largely considered safe. So while it may be safe, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you or better for you. Some evidence shows that people who drink moderately, and this is this includes any alcohol, so whether it's wine, beer, or hard liquor, people who drink moderately might have somewhat of a lower risk of heart disease than those who do not drink and also those who drink too much. So there's kind of that sweet spot within the safe recommendations. But it's also known that drinking excessively can increase your blood pressure, potentially leading to heart disease and stroke. So lots to keep in mind here. Yes. Animal studies have shown that antioxidants in red wine, like resveratrol, have you heard of that one? No. Okay. This is, it's like a really hot, like it's always an anti-aging product. Like creams? Yes. So resveratrol might reduce blood vessel inflammation, a risk factor for heart disease. And this has been shown in animal studies. However, the research has not been done in humans. And so we can't say that humans would be able to experience the same benefit. And it's actually pretty unlikely. Okay, so yeah, I know. Plus, we also know that drinking too much alcohol increases the risk of high blood pressure, high triglycerides, liver damage, obesity, mental illness, some cancers, accidents, and many other health conditions. So if you don't already drink red wine, it's not recommended that you start. But if you do want to enjoy some red wine, go for it. And always remember to enjoy responsibly. Alternate with waters and remember that a standard glass is only five ounces, which is smaller than you think. Yeah, teeny weeny. Um, okay, that's it for wine. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> well, it's, it, that's it for like the nutrition lecture on the wine. History. No, that was, that was awesome. And I mean, it, it really kind of rolls nicely into mine because I do talk quite a bit actually about French wine. Ooh. Yeah, but also a lot about the fraud that has happened within the wine industry. But not to fret because it's not really at the regular consumer level, which I will get into. Interesting. So one thing, like when I was doing my research, I found just regulations for wine are different in every single region, in every single country. And I could see especially now that like organic wines are becoming, you know, more interesting to consumers, I can just see where fraud might pop up. For sure. Okay. So when I was looking for the research on this story, I did find a couple of recent headlines about wine that I thought were relevant to today's topic, similar to kind of what you shared, just some stats and whatnot. But 
These ones are a little bit more recent, having to do with the current times and the pandemic. And I mean, it's no surprise to me that at least in in 2020, it's it's been a big year for wine sales. And with that, a few trends have also emerged. For example, convenience store wine purchasing has increased by 44.5% since 2019. So that's clearly not in Ontario, might not even be Canada. I think it was an American stat, but it's something that alcohol producers should definitely make note of. People are buying their liquor and their wine at convenience stores. 50% more often than they were before. Yes, Almost 50%. That's wild. Uh Um, And then another article from Business Insider South Africa claims that their boxed wine has outsold bottled wine for the first time ever in 2020. People are going for bulk. I actually read that too in my research that uh, boxed wine and screw caps, Mm -hmm. which used to be shunned in the wine industry. It was all about the cork. Now they're uh, taking center stage. That's amazing. It's amazing news. It's so much easier. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. Um, so the the trend in South Africa may be partially due to the fact that some alcohol was banned during the pandemic. So I think that there were some people stocking up. Okay. Um, but it's all very relevant to today's topic, which is the most famous wine fraud case. And I'm not going to tell you anymore because I, I laid it out <laughs> where I'm like, I want it to be shocking. <laughs> I feel like it will be because I can't tell you how little I know about this. I know. It's nothing. I know nothing. (laughs) Okay, so some of the references I used for this episode include the documentary Sour Grapes by filmmakers Jerry Rothwell and Ruben Atlas, an article by Tom Mullen written for Forbes, and one by uh, Rupert Millard for the Drinks Business website. And then, of course, you can always find the references in our show notes at our new website, (laughs) dietheticsafterdark.com. Nicely done. (laughs) I'm going to be talking quite a bit about wine auctions throughout this episode, since this is where a lot of these fraudulent acts took place. So there's two basic types of wine auctions. First-hand auctions are when wine producers will auction off their own wine, usually vintages, and they'll usually do it for something like a charity. Uh, Second-hand auctions are different in that they're arranged by an auction house or like a secondary party. Uh, The wine here is auctioned off more like art, and the buyers are considered collectors. Interesting. Now, the most expensive bottle of wine to have ever been sold at an auction like this was a bottle of 1945 Romanée Conti Burgundy sold in 2018. And I want you to guess how much. Um, Two million. No, it was less. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew it was going to be big, so I went high. That's true. It was half a million dollars. So... That's a lot of money for a bottle of wine. And that's USD. So in Canadian, it was just over $700,000. Wow. Mm -hmm. You could buy a house. You could buy a house. Do you know why it was so expensive? So I'll I'll get to that because the the actual assessment value was 17 times less than what it sold for. So the auction house kind of valued it, and it was actually only valued at $32,000. So this Mm -hmm. is clearly just like the big league of wines, I think it's also seen somewhat as like a competition. It's a bit competitive. Um, And these are some of the richest people in the world who attend these events. Yeah, clearly. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, a quick little history on wine auctions overall. Uh, So the first charity wine event took place in 1443 when the Duke of Burgundy from Burgundy, France, and his wife, they sold wine and donated the proceeds to a hospital. In 1859, the first wine auction took place for a charity at Christie's Wine Auction. And this specific event actually still takes place every year to this day. In 1969, an American producer and distributor contacted Christie's and asked to host a wine auction at the Continental Plaza Hotel in Chicago. That night, they sold $55,000 worth of Californian and European wines. Mm. However, there were some issues getting these secondhand auctions launched in the U.S., as some retailers would clearly protest. And um, they even filed restraining orders against the state liquor authority since they were issuing auction licenses, and apparently they shouldn't have been doing that. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. While some auctions did take place before the 90s, there was a real uptick in these events during the dot-com boom when everyone was making a ton of money off of this cool new thing called the internet. (laughs) Look how far we've come. I know. Seriously. Since the 90s. That wasn't that long ago. So in this scenario, we have really rich people who are getting richer and wine is now being seen as an art form. So naturally these things, they pair really well together. And according to Winos, the best way to taste wine is in a group setting where you can schmooze and kind of share the experience with each other. In the early 2000s, there was a group called the Angry Men who would meet about eight times a year to share dinner and wine, often drinking $200,000 of wine a night. Oh my gosh. I know. Isn't that insane? It's so extravagant. Yeah. And it wasn't that big of a group. Wow. (laughs) So the name of the group actually came from the feeling you get when you're invited to a party and you bring a really nice bottle of wine and everyone else comes with crappy wine. Oh my gosh. So that makes you an angry man. (laughs) snobby. Yeah. All right. So a gentleman by the name of Rudy Kurniawan was introduced to the angry men as being an up-and-comer in the wine collection biz. Not too much was known about Rudy other than the fact that he is of Chinese descent and he moved to Arcadia, California from Jakarta, Indonesia. He's described by friends as being classy, graceful, and a very generous man. Uh, he also had an amazing palate and could identify almost any wine. Mm. There were a lot of rumors about his life, including that his family owned the Heineken distributorship in China and that he had a million-dollar monthly allowance for wine that was given to him from his brother. For his own consumption? Yeah, for like his wine collection and whatnot. A million dollars? This is a rumor, so this has not been stated as fact, but these are the types of rumors that were going around about this guy because he didn't really engage when it came to conversations about his family. Okay, okay. Wow. Yes. So there were all these rumors going around, but there were a lot of his friends who did meet both his mother and his brother. So it did kind of seem like the story checked out because they met them. They were like very, not bougie people, but they they kind of fit the part. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Rudy's spending habits also backed up these rumors as he would often spend a ton of money at these wine auctions, which would drive up the prices of the wines that he would bid on. So he started setting records in money, in the money that he was spending on wines. And a journalist in the Sour Grapes documentary claimed that he was starting to kind of like ruin the old boys club. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So Rudy was introduced to a man named 
John Capon, whose family owns a wine store called Acker, Merrill, and Condit, but um, I think it's just called Acker now. Uh, John transformed the store to include wine auctions, and he started to make them like a little bit more fun. He then began somewhat of a partnership with Rudy, and between 2003 and 2006, he sold over $35 million worth of Rudy's personal wine collection. Acker, so the wine house, soon became the number one wine house in the world. There were some questions about whether John could physically inspect all of the wine that was being auctioned off at Acker during that time, since so much wine was going through. Hmm. Wine consultants and collectors began to notice fakes that were making their way into their own collections. Uh, Rudy had even mentioned that he had to become an expert in fake wines because there was so much of it on the auction market. And one wine producer from Burgundy, France, his name is Laurent Ponceau. He noticed that some of his wine that was being showcased in an auction magazine was dated 1929, but his winery didn't start bottling that wine until 1934. Ooh, okay. He became very suspicious, but was also like, this is a little bit lazy. Mm -hmm. What is happening here? Um, So I'm going to just take a minute to tell you a little bit more about Laurent's winery. It's called Domaine Ponceau, and his last name is Ponceau as well. So he's clearly related at some capacity. Um, And they began producing wine in 1872. The average bottle that's available to us more common folk is less than $1,000. I checked on the LCBO website. (laughs) And in the documentary, Ponceau expressed some confusion by the fact that Domaine Ponceau Winery would sell their bottles at one price, and then they would be released on the auction scene with a markup that was 10 times the amount. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, wine from Burgundy, France is highly coveted. As you were saying, like French wine is just very desirable in many places around the world. But this price surge drove up the cost of wine from this region to the point where it was unattainable. Domaine Ponceau wine was therefore often in circulation at these auction houses with absurd prices on them. And when Ponceau saw the fakes in this auction magazine that I mentioned, uh, he saw that John Capon from Acker Auction House had signed off on these wines. Now, a seasoned auctioneer should really know the years of these certain wines, when things were produced and and whatnot. And it's possible that this was just a mistake. However, Ponceau expressed that each bottle was being sold between $50,000 and $70,000 and that John Capon was making about 20% off of those sales. Mm. So either it was a mistake or the plot thickens. Pretty profitable mistake. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we're in 2008, and Ponceau decides to go to New York City to investigate what's going on for himself. It's the middle of the recession now, but there's a big Acker wine auction that's taking place in Manhattan. Uh, The week beforehand, a massive investment banking company called Bear Stearns shut down, so nobody really knew what was going to happen at this this wine auction, since a lot of wine collectors are investment banker types, Mm -hmm. especially in, in the U.S., Um, So Ponceau, he decides to go, and needless to say, this auction gets rowdy. The wine is flowing, and based on the video footage, it looked more like a bar than a sophisticated auction. (laughs) And just as they're about to auction off some Domaine Ponceau bottles, Laurent Ponceau stands up and yells, Withdraw my wines! Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) I know. Based on the retelling of of this story, it sounded like it was extremely dramatic. (laughs) And I 
Love that he did that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> they end up taking the wine out of the auction circuit for that night, and Ponceau meets with John Capon afterwards to ask whose counterfeit wine he was selling. John sets up a meeting for the next day between, so he sets a meeting up, sorry, with Ponceau and Rudy. Okay. I was wondering when, where Rudy was going to come back. I know. Sorry, there's a lot of players in this in this story. So if it gets confusing at any point. I think I'm following though. I'm just listening very closely. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so when they meet, Rudy is super friendly. He's calm. He's a little bit confused or seems a bit confused. He tells Ponceau that he buys so much wine that he couldn't remember exactly where it came from. And Ponceau, he's just not sure if he could trust Rudy, but he decides that he's going to play nice and try to get some more information. A few days later, Rudy gives Ponceau his source, who is a man named Pak Hendra from Jakarta. He gives him two phone numbers, but one of them ends up being a fax line for an airline, hmm. and the other was a number for a strip mall. Okay. Useful. Yes. We'll come back to that. But I'm just going to introduce somebody new to this plot line, and that's a gentleman by the name of Bill Koch. Mm-hmm. So Bill was one of the only people who could bid up against Rudy when the wine prices started soaring. Uh, so he's a, a collector from Palm Beach, Florida, and he collects art, swords, coins, wine. He's just a big collector of all things. Mm-hmm. And in the documentary, they take you through his wine cellar, which is no doubt bigger than my home. Oh my gosh. It's massive. And he has this this collection of 43,000 bottles. Wow. Uh-huh. And he says that some of his previous bottles, and he actually shows them in the documentary, um, he says that they were previously owned by Thomas Jefferson uh, from the 1700s. Oh my gosh. So it's a collection. Yeah. He's not drinking these. These are just to have. No, it's probably rancid by now. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and as he's showing off these bottles, he calls out a couple counterfeit bottles and lays them out, saying that he paid at least $100,000 for each of them wow. and found out after the fact that they were fakes. Overall, it was estimated that Bill has over 400 fake bottles in his collection, totaling over $4 million. Wow. So he reached out to the auction houses upon finding out that they were fakes, but they wouldn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. So Bill hires an investigator named Brad Goldstein to kind of check things out. At one point, um, Ponceau, the French winemaker, and Bill, they both decide to join forces. They hear about each other and like, we, I think we'll just do better if we do this together. They're both being affected by these wine knockoffs, and they just decided that something needed to be done. So Bill hires a team of experts, and they're all within kind of the wine trades. So we have cork experts, glass experts, and glue experts, and they start finding many inconsistencies in Bill's collection. And one of them was actually found with Elmer's glue oh my gosh. on it, <laughs> and it was a bottle from 1958. So it was a vintage bottle, and it had Elmer's glue on it. Wow. Since they still thought that Pak Hendra from Jakarta was involved at some capacity, even though the phone numbers turned out to be fake, uh, Ponceau, he flies to Asia to check it out. After asking around about Pak Hendra, he finds out that the name Pak Hendra <laughs> is the equivalent of Mr. Smith in English. Oh. So there's just a lot of Pak Hendras <laughs> out in the world. <laughs> but then he starts asking the restaurant and wine collector owners in Asia just about Rudy and his family beer business, but nobody knows anything about him. Mm. In the meantime, Bill's investigator looks into Rudy's immigration status and they find removal proceedings from 2003 
and a warrant for his arrest. Okay. His student visa, yeah, we're getting places. (laughs) His student visa had expired. So if he left the country at that point, he wouldn't be allowed back in. How old is he? Oh, good question. He's not that old. He's pretty, he's pretty young. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll find out and fact check that. I feel like he was probably just based on what he looked like. He was probably in his 20s or 30s at this point. Quick fact check. Rudy Kurniawan is currently 44 years old. At this point, he was in his mid 30s. So they figured out where Rudy got his visa in Indonesia, and it was from a strip mall, but it looked kind of more like the address was coming from a hardware store. So again, very suspicious. At this point, the FBI starts getting involved. And as I mentioned before, it was rumored that Rudy was a trust fund kid, but they couldn't find any real evidence to back this up. And it turns out that Rudy was actually fairly broke and was moving his debts around to almost give the illusion of having money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Acker Winehouse would pay Rudy in advance for his wines since they knew that they would sell at a high price and they wanted to snag them before another wine house would get them so that they wouldn't get Rudy's business. And at one point, Rudy owed Acker about $10 million. So they stopped doing business with him. Wow. But the other wine houses continued to take his business until 2012, it seems. Okay. And in March 2012, the FBI decides to go and arrest him. And he, like Rudy, answers the door like he's just woken up. (laughs) The place is an absolute disaster. There is wine everywhere. It's on every shelf. It's on the floor in boxes. There's wine bottles soaking in the sink. Oh, my gosh. They found cork extraction devices, a mixing station, new vintage looking labels, essentially everything that you would need to produce a wine bottle. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so funny. Mm -hmm. But there was no actual like wine production equipment in the house, Right. but the house was kept super cool. And then there were space heaters in the bedrooms. So something was going on. So it was like a giant wine cooler kind of thing. Like a wine factory. Like a wine factory. Yeah. (laughs) Where they get the wine, maybe, and put it in the bottles there. (laughs) For sure. Probably get affordable wine, more affordable wine, and bottle it to look like vintage wine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And Rudy had also purchased thousands of dollars worth of wax, antique paper, and empty wine bottles from restaurants, which I thought was a great way to get about it. so suspicious. (laughs) Yeah. So it's assumed that through trial and error, Rudy had apparently made these cheap wine concoctions himself, which made... Many people think that it was just like an art in itself. Like he's clearly an artist. He has a really good palate and he can taste cheap wines and say, if I mix these two together, Mm. it's going to taste like this more expensive wine. Oh, that is impressive. It's a real skill. Yes. Um, Because he he fooled some of like the most experienced wine collectors and sommeliers, Mm. wine drinkers. And it's not just like within America. This was around the world. Wow. So a lot of people tried his wines and thought that they were legit. But it was estimated that each bottle would take about an hour to piece together following the actual bottling process, like putting the wine in the bottles. So with the amount of counterfeit bottles that he did produce, it would have been impossible for him to do this on his own. However, only Rudy was detained and he was brought to a detention center in New York City. Uh, He was deemed a flight risk and wasn't given bail. Um, During the FBI investigation, they traced money from Rudy to his brother in Indonesia. And at one point uh, in 2007, he wired his family $17 million, uh, just making the authorities think that this was more of a family affair. Mm -hmm. 
But his whole family didn't really seem to have anything to hide. Like most of them were just members of the community. Many of them had open Facebook pages. So either they were super confident in the crimes or they were completely unaware of what was going on. Well, they must have asked questions when he was like, I'm just going to wire you a quick 17 mil. For sure. Unless they thought that he was like a legitimate wine collector that was doing really good business. Yeah. You never know. You never know. He fooled a lot of people. Totally. (laughs) All right. Things start to get like a little more fishy now. Okay. (laughs) One very interesting thing that did come up during the investigation that might help explain where Rudy got some of his initial wine startup money. Rudy's mother, Lenny Wati Tan, had two brothers, Eddie and Hendra. And they were linked to the largest bank heist in Jakarta history. Oh, wow. So in the early 90s, they stole $780 million from Bapindo Bank. Oh, my god! And only one-tenth of that money was ever recovered. Wow. <laughs> That's, oh, my gosh. This is like the wealthiest episode we've ever done. There's so much money flying. <laughs> yeah. Eddie escaped from prison in 1996 and is said to be hiding out in China. And Hendra was arrested trying to flee to Australia. And he actually passed away in January of 2003. The FBI couldn't prove that Rudy had ever received any of that money, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. They did also find that his uncle Hendra owned the small strip mall where Rudy had obtained his visa to get into the U.S. So there must have been a connection at some capacity at some point, whether or not it was financial. So Mm -hmm. Rudy pled not guilty, but regardless, in December of 2013, he received a 10-year sentence and had to pay uh, $28.4 million back to the victims of his crimes. And Bill Koch, he won $3 million, um, and wow. Rudy still has yet to pay that back. Because he has no money, right? Wasn't he broke, moving debt around? Correct. He filed for bankruptcy. Ugh. <laughs> Yes, but many people do still think that that sentence was too tough, just considering what the crime was, and um, that he must have had some accomplices, but authorities couldn't prove that anyone else was involved in the fraud. Hmm. Wow. Do you think the sentence was too tough? Not really. (laughs) I don't really either. I feel like it seems quite fitting, just considering the amount of money and the amount of money people were spending on these bottles that were fake. Yeah, and I think that... It was just maybe who the victims of the crime were. Right. Because they were clearly people who could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on wine. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. But what about, what was his name, Pousseau? Pousseau, yeah. Pousseau. I got I got kind of lost here, but like he was angry because his wine was being overvalued and driving the price up, right? Yeah. So essentially he was producing wine, selling it at a certain price, and then it was going up on these auction markets at a higher price. But then he started noticing that some of them were fake. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he was investigating it for his own, his own wineries. Sake. Reputation. Sake. Yeah. Reputation. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's quite a few victims. And even if they're rich victims, they're still, you know, they were paying for a product. It's fraud. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, But yeah, this was deemed the largest wine seizure that the U.S. Marshal has ever handled. And they ended up destroying over 500 bottles, which I was like, it's still wine. Yeah, why destroy? (laughs) Aw, wow. I guess like the safe like food handling skills. For sure. Probably not great. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm sure they destroyed, I'm using heavy air quotes, they all <laughs> took home like 100 bottles. It tastes tastes rich, right? You could bring it to a party. Yeah, it's a perfect, perfect blend. Mm-hmm. Um, but today it's still estimated that as many as 10,000 bottles from Rudy's collection are still sitting in private collections across the world, but it's impossible to track all of them and where they are. Wow. And wine fraud overall still continues. So there clearly were more players in the game. Mm. Uh, so Rudy was actually released from prison in November of 2020. So a few months ago, and this was only after serving seven years of his sentence, but he was taken directly into custody by the U S immigration and custom enforcement after pending removal. Oh, from the country. So this past December, his deportation was confirmed. And according to a news article that was posted two days ago, he's still awaiting deportation. Okay, interesting. So that means he's in custody in the States? Yes. Waiting to get deported. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yep. And that's the story of the rise and fall. Rudy. Yeah. Rudy Rudy Kurniawan. Oh my goodness. That is so crazy. And I was sort of just thinking how funny it is that we were like laughing about the wines we used to drink when we were 19 and that were super cheap. And if someone brought them to our party, we'd be like, "Mm, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But like the wines we drink, like our favorite wines now are probably so low tier compared to, they are low tier compared to what these people were drinking and what people were buying. Yes. A fraction of the cost. I feel (laughs) like my go-to wines are like, $15, $20. Yeah, 15 to 20 range. (laughs) 20, I bought one the other day that was 22, and I was like, this is a real treat. (laughs) (laughs) That is. It is. Treat yourself. It was a great bottle, though. That's amazing. And yeah, I feel like at the end of these episodes, normally I like to give some tips or like things that consumers can look out for. But (laughs) as we were just saying, I feel like nobody that's really listening to our podcast is attending Mm -hmm. wine auctions. And if you are, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, for sure. Me too. Yes. (laughs) I'd love to know what it's like. And yeah, I guess if you do attend these wine auctions and you buy a $200,000 bottle of wine, just check to see if it's Elmer's glue. Yeah. Check the glue. Check the glue. Check the dates. Just do a quick Google search and find out when that wine was being bottled. Yeah. Wow. What a wild story. So much fraud, like so much money. It's just kind of hard to wrap your mind around. It, yeah, it truly is. I found it, it was just a little bit over my head, but I also found it a little bit difficult to empathize with some of the victims of this crime. Yeah. When you see their house and their wine cellars and mm-hmm. whatnot, they seem like really nice people, but it's tough. I feel totally. like $3 million for um, Bill Coke is probably like $40 Nothing. for Nothing. us. Yeah. What are you in an hour maybe? <laughs> also, did you see Chrissy Teigen's tweet about the wine? No. No. Okay, perfect. Okay, Chrissy Teigen, absolutely love her. And Mm -hmm. so she recently lost her baby, right? So she's been mourning and grieving for the past couple months. And she tweeted amidst all this that one time her and John had gone to a restaurant and the (gasps) waiter sold her a bottle of like really like talked up this wine. I was like, you got to get this one. It's so fantastic. And then they got the bill and it was $13,000 and they didn't know. So like it was a total surprise bill. And they were like, what the heck? Like you got to tell us if you're selling us a bottle that costs that much. And I think they just paid it and left, but she tweeted about it as a joke, but also like 
this this happened and it's kind of nuts. And the hate that she got because it's a pandemic and people are living paycheck to paycheck if they even have a paycheck. Mm-hmm. And people were pissed, like really pissed. Um, and it was drama. It was Twitter drama. It was fascinating. You know what? I actually, I did, now that you mentioned it, I did read a headline about this. I think it was last week or something, mm-hmm. or maybe it was this week. But that is pretty shocking. It's shocking that the waiter thought that they could get away with it. I guess they did yeah. get away with it. Totally. Do you, do you tip 15% on that? Well, Kate, that's the other thing, though, is like, yeah, I think I still would, maybe. Who buys a bottle of wine without asking the price or like looking at a menu? John Legend. John Legend, Chrissy Teigen. And it's <laughs> no secret that they're rich. They're celebrities. Mm-hmm. So like, it doesn't really make me super angry to hear that they spent, like, they had this night out spent 13000 because that's kind of what I imagine their life like anyways. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make wrong, me angry. But... <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know. It doesn't make me angry either. Obviously, it's her experience. And it's the same in this story. These are these people's experiences. Yeah. Are their so, experiences. Yeah. If they feel like they've been defrauded or disrespected, mm-hmm. I guess we have to respect that. Yeah. And you mentioned like people look at wine like an art form Mm -hmm. and like a collector's item, like in the same way that people look at art. And it's, it's true. I mean, if you're paying that much for something, you want it to be authentic. For sure. And Chrissy Teigen just drank a Picasso. She drank a Picasso. Exactly. (laughs) It better have been a great bottle of wine for her sake. She deserves it. Yeah, she does. (laughs) She definitely, definitely does. That was really well done. Um, I learned a ton. I also learned how cheap the wine that I buy is. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I don't know. That was really well done. Yeah, it was great learning about the history too. I feel way more educated about wines. I don't know if I'm ready to bring this to a party yet, but there are no parties anyways, so. (laughs) I know. I still feel like someone's going to listen to this and be like, those girls don't know a thing about wine. Because there's so much. There's so much to know. But then there's also going to be some people who listen and say, those girls know a lot about wine. True. Maybe they learned a thing or two. That would be the best. Yeah. We're somewhere in the middle. We're somewhere in the middle, but closer to the knowing less about wine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So for next episode, I want to know what your favorite pancake topping is. Oh my gosh. Well, you know what I'm going to say. We'll say it. (laughs) (laughs) Maple syrup. I put maple yeah. syrup on everything. I love that. Stuff. I know it's so good. Obviously, it's mine too. But I also love chocolate chips in my pancakes, blueberries, and I yeah. love um butter, just a butter on my pancakes. Yeah, I'm a big, big blueberry gal. Yeah. Not really into the chocolate chips. Don't you find well, you put them in the pancakes and they always burn on the pan. They do. Yeah, that's true. But mm-hmm. it's a side effect I'm willing to accept. And the only like I don't always want chocolate chip pancakes because it's just a little too close to cake first thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least if it's blueberries, like blueberry pancakes still taste so good. And you're like, oh, there's a fruit. Yeah. yeah. Got some more nutrients in this. Yeah. Maple syrup, blueberries. I'm trying to think of other things. Banana pancakes. Mm-hmm. Um, sprinkles in pancakes are really good. Wait, here's a and good question. Fun. Yeah. Waffles or pancakes. Uh, waffles because the maple really? syrup pools in the little yeah. cups 
and you get more yeah. of it in your mouth and everybody. Okay, fair. That's a great point. <laughs> great point. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at dieteticsafterdark.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at dieteticsafterdark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.